right, I actually want to read this for us this morning, and then we'll pray and get into our time together. Philippians 1, 3 through 11, here is the word of the living God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask, Father, as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, challenge us even to have the kind of love that the Apostle Paul had for the Philippians, that our love for God and love for one another would grow as a result of our time of encountering your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, I've titled the message this morning, Praying for the Faithful. There are going to be three words that are going to organize our time together. The first word is going to be the word thankfulness, verses 3 through 6. The second word is going to be the word affection, and that's going to come from verses 7 through 8. And then finally, supplication, verses 9 through 11, as the Apostle Paul then talks about his supplicating of the Lord for the things that he wants to see happen in the life of the Philippians. So thankfulness, affection, and supplication is the direction we're headed this morning. So let's start with thankfulness. Paul said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Members of the church in Philippi have left such an impression on Paul that his memory of them produced thankfulness in his heart to God. Again, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul had a, a good memory of the Philippians. It led him to pray with thanksgiving and it led him to pray with joy. Now, this Greek word for thank is eucharisteo. One commentator says of the group or the word group that Eucharisteo is a part of that at the core is the idea of showing favor that imposes the obligation of gratitude. In other words, when someone shows you favor or grace, you are obliged to be grateful. In a relationship to God, this is certainly the expectation. If we focus just on the Apostle Paul's writing about being thankful to God, we see just how important a concept like thanksgiving is. I quote Mark Keown, a commentator who summarizes this so well. He says, for Paul, 
Thanksgiving is central to the appropriate response of humanity to God, something that godless pagans failed to do. Paul expects believers to give thanks to God for all things, including his provision for the Lord's Supper in worship and prayer for the work of other believers and then generally. And then notice this. Without question for Paul, thankfulness to God is basic to being Christian. Authentic Christians are marked by an attitude of gratitude. Now, when I read that, I can so easily give the hearty amen, right? Um, Authentic Christians are thankful Christians. This is a thousand times true. But it's a whole lot easier to say the amen than it is to practice thankfulness, isn't it? It's easy to mouth the words of this good theology, but it's quite another thing to day in and day out fight the battle for gratitude. Lord brings a a good thing into your life. Will you be thankful for it? The Lord brings a hardship into your life. Will you be thankful through it? Notice I didn't say, will you be thankful for it? Job was not thanking God that he lost everything. Rather, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job didn't have a kind of morbid embrace of his suffering. The same thing with the Apostle Paul. By the way, where was Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? He was in jail. He was in prison. Not exactly the best of circumstances. He would have been chained up to prisoners on a rotation. He wasn't free to roam about. He was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And yet we don't find him morbidly enjoying the suffering. Okay? What Paul did, though, was find a way to be thankful in the midst of his suffering. He found a way to rejoice in however the gospel was working. Look at this in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that's imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's amazing. Paul, though he was in prison, and experience less than favorable conditions, model joy and thankfulness in the midst of his trial. When he could easily think, there is no good that will come from this. How could God use this horrible situation in my life? But he doesn't do that. He says, hey, my imprisonment has turned out for gospel progress. I'm sharing the gospel with guards. Christians who are hearing about my story are being encouraged to boldly proclaim Christ. And even the people who are preaching Christ with bad motives to try and one-up me while I'm in prison, that's great because the gospel's going out. <laughs> Paul is a very optimistic guy. Glass half full. And all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Of course, this isn't because he loves his suffering, but he loves what the suffering produces, and that is greater joy in the gospel, greater thanksgiving in the gospel. Church, you and I will never be able to see our circumstances rightly until we view them like Paul did, until we view everything under God's providence that happens in our lives as that which is designed by a good and loving God to promote the gospel in our lives and the world around us. And if he is inflicting suffering on us, it's because he's reminding us that this is not our home. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for the city whose builder and maker is God. And suffering produces hope in us of another world, a world that the gospel promises. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it is good, because it is good. If bad, because it works in us patience, humility, contempt of this world, and the hope of our eternal country. We can be thankful in all things because it promotes gospel purposes in our lives. Paul was thankful for the Philippians, and his thankfulness was a model for being thankful in hardship because of its promotion of the gospel. And it's no surprise then that when he gives thanks to God for the Philippians, he gives thanks for, look at verse 5, Uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was thankful and joyful for the Philippians because they were sold out to the gospel. Their full commitment to the gospel was evidence, as Paul said, from the first day until now. This means there was a duration of time over which their character was proven. You know, we've, we've heard it many times from this pulpit, and rightly so, that that many people can fake Christianity, but they can't fake it for very long, right? The fact is, difficulty arises in our lives. We lose friends. We are confronted by our own sinfulness. We are tempted by the sinful world. We get rejected by others, and all because we call ourselves Christians. These things test us as to the genuineness of our commitment to Christ and the gospel. And true faith will persevere through that. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And the Philippians were faithful from the first day until now. They persevered in the fellowship of the gospel. Now this next verse is one of the most precious and beautiful promises, I think, in all of Scripture. It's the one that Paul gave to the Philippians in verse 6. And I have it somewhere, I promise you. Believe me, actually, I don't. I'm leading you astray. Let's see if you got this memorized, though. Actually, it's up there. I did this again, Ben. I did it once again. It was up there, and I didn't think I had it. You remember last time when I did this? Glorious. Just all my imperfections on display for everybody to see. All right. But this verse, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? There's a verse that we need to memorize. It's this one to use a banking analogy. The rich deposit this verse will be for your soul will gain interest over the years to come. And you can make withdrawals on this verse and it will always, always meet your need. Why would I say that? Well, let me begin by explaining it. This verse is saying that God is committing to see through to completion what he, what he has started in you. Again, God is committed to see through to completion what he has started in you. 
I'm compelled to believe that what Paul is talking about in this verse is the salvation of the believer. Now, by that, I mean the total work of salvation, not just the initial work of justification, but also the final work of glorification. I'm compelled to believe this because in this verse, Paul speaks about something that God started in you and that thing being completed at the day of Christ. Let me explain. We are in this introductory section of the letter to the Philippians. And like any good introduction, ideas get introduced that you expect the author to speak about later on. In this introduction, which is in the form of a prayer, Paul introduces two themes in verse 6 he's going to pick up on later in his letter. And when he picks up on them later, it's clear that salvation is in view. The first is the theme of God working in his people. All right, The theme of God working in his people. It says, again in verse 6, He who began a good work in you. And then Paul picks up this language. Notice this in Philippians 2, 12-13. And he says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What's the point? These verses in chapter 2 carry forward the idea that Paul introduced in 1.6. In 1.6, the emphasis was on the work God started and will complete. And then in 2.12-13, through 13, the emphasis, emphasis is on the work God continues to do throughout the course of a Christian's life. And that continual work is a work of salvation or to be particular, a work of sanctification. So I think 2.12-13 helps us to read 1.6 as a reference to salvation. The second theme introduced in 1.6 is that of God bringing to completion at the day of Jesus Christ the work he began in the believer. Uh, this expression, at the day of Jesus Christ, refers, refers to the return of Christ. Return of Christ is something Paul talks about elsewhere in chapter 1, verse 10, where he prays that the Philippians will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. These words, pure and blameless, have to do with sanctification. God is sanctifying us, keeping us pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that is, the return of Christ. And Paul picks up the theme of the return of Christ in another place in Philippians, chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, and here's what he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, we're waiting for Christ to come from heaven to do this, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. When Christ returns, our body will be like His body. We will be glorified. So to put just a summary to this, I believe that Paul is talking about salvation here in 1.6. He introduces themes in this verse that he picks up later, and when he picks them up later, they have salvation tones to them. Um, now, that probably felt a little scholarly, I suppose. Um, but there is something obviously so very valuable about this verse when it comes to the applicability of it in our lives. Because what this verse says on the one hand is that <laughs> this work of sanctification, the struggle and the trials that we go through in order to be conformed to the image of Christ, that all of that will have a completion at the day of Christ. And this is a glorious truth because I don't know about you, uh, but I am ready to be done struggling with sin. 
I am ready to be through the trials that this life brings. I'm ready for glorification. I'm ready for a time in which I will never be tempted ever again. And this verse promises all God's people that the work that God began in us in salvation, he promises to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful promise of the Lord to us. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We saw this good work in the Philippians. He was thankful for that good work God did in them, and he knew God would bring it to completion. Yet Paul was not just thankful for them. He had a godly affection for them. Notice these verses. Paul says in verses 7 through 8, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Did you catch the godly affection that Paul had for the church in Philippi? As an aside, I think Paul's heart here is a corrective for those who think that to be a Christ follower means you should be emotionless. Um, Now, I think we could say something about emotionalism in our day, which puts emotion sort of at the center of everything and is driven in every decision by emotion. But God in no way like diminishes the importance of the emotional life in the believer. He created us with a mind. He created us with a will. He created us with emotions or affections. And part of the sanctification process is not only to sanctify our thinking life, our thought life, but also to sanctify our emotions, to sanctify our affections. Now, at the end of the day, like I just mentioned, we can't make decisions right on based based on how we feel all the time. If I got up in the morning and I was like, I don't feel like loving my wife today. Um, that wouldn't work so well. If I got up and I thought, I don't feel like doing work today, um, I could get fired. Uh, If I got up and I thought, well, you know, I just feel like playing video games and eating Cheetos all day and not doing anything, um, I could certainly do that, but I'm not supposed to be driven by my feelings, right? I'm supposed to be driven by faith and the facts of the word of God. But nonetheless, God is in the business of sanctifying our emotions. And in fact, notice this verse from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. This is a command to God's people to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a command that God is giving his people that their emotions should bring about gladness and joy, and that is a command that God's, God places on believers. God is in the business of commanding our emotional life. And if we think about the fact that sanctification is becoming more like Christ, then there is a, a sense in which we can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and see in Him a very rich and healthy emotional life. He was one who had His emotions and check one whose emotions were brought underneath the, the, the Father's will and 
Therefore, as we look to Christ in the Gospels, we can see a, a man whose emotions were very much so um, in check and healthy. Um, by the way, again, um, God commanding our motions, uh, we could see this all over the place in the Scripture, and the point is this, that again, we must pay attention to our emotional life and bring it underneath the Lordship of Christ. Paul did. Uh, as a slave of Christ, he was sold out to pre pleasing Christ in all things, and that shaped his heart. He learned to love the things that Christ loves, and what Christ loves is when his people partner up together in gospel ministry. Paul himself experienced this partnership in the gospel with the Philippians, and he loved them. Notice again at the end of verse 7, he indicates that the Philippians were with Paul in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They were with him in prison, not in the sense of being physically with him in prison, but they were with him in the sense of helping his ministry go forward even while he was chained up. Uh, even in Paul's most handicapped circumstance, the Philippians were his hands and his feet. And that fellowship and mutual ministry brought great encouragement to Paul's heart. He said here in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is hundreds of miles away from the Philippians, but he yearns for their fellowship. The word for yearn here is the Greek word epipatheo. It means to have a strong desire for something with the implication of need. Paul desired being together with the Philippians apparently to the degree that he thought he needed that fellowship. I think this is contrary to what we would call the individualistic spirit of our day. We could say that this attitude has been with us since the fall because it has, but our sinful culture champions individualism, right? You have your own truth, follow your heart. Uh, we have other mantras in our culture like that, and underneath them all is a sort of individualism. But the Bible doesn't speak this way. In fact, God created us for community. Uh, he created us to be in relationship with other human beings. And as saved human beings, He not only baptized us into the universal body of Christ, but He also commands us to live in local church community. We need each other to grow spiritually. We need each other to carry out gospel ministry. The Apostle Paul knew that. He knew that he was created for community. And he yearned for that fellowship with the Philippians. That was Paul's affection that he had. So thanksgiving, affection, and now supplication. Paul prays for something for the Philippians. He asks God that something will grow among these brothers and sisters. So if you uh, catch what that was in verse 9, we're going to read that again as we read it in the first. Paul says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul wants their love to increase. Observe here that love was already something the Philippians possessed. If something is to abound more and more, it assumes the presence of that thing is already there. We are talking about degrees. The Philippians had a degree of love, but it still needed to grow. Paul wanted their love uh, to increase. But in reality, um, as we think about this, in, in this from the standpoint of kind of how our culture views love, uh, 
uh, our culture views love in a very convoluted way, we could say, right? Um, our culture has a view of love that is different than the biblical view of love. Um, we hear things like love is love uh, or all you need is love. And I think that was a Beatles song, right? A little bit outside of my era, but all you need is love. And we're pressured by the prevailing winds of the philosophy and psychology to affirm that whatever people feel they are, that is who they are. Uh, it would be unloving to say anything different, we are heard. You see, that view of love, though, has no shape to it. It has no longevity to it. But the idea of love that Paul has here, which comes from the Greek word agape, is not random. Uh, the word describes characteristics that involve action. Love, we could simply say, is, is an action. It's an attitude that leads one to act on the benefit or to the benefit of the one loved. Take, for example, the greatest act of love in all of human history, God's gift of the sacrificial death of Christ. For God so loved the world, that is, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son. God's love gave. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love demonstrates. So God's love was not random, nor was it, dare I say, reckless. Rather, his love led to purposeful action. He gave his son for our redemption. Godlike love then does what is best for others. And that is to be our love for others. We are to do what is best for others. That is agape love. Love that is an action of the will. That regardless of how I feel, I am going to love someone else. Agape God-stained love. And what help, helps us grow in our love is what Paul says here. He says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What gives direction to our love is knowledge and all discernment. Think of it this way. Do any of you like bowling? Okay, two of you. Um, you, you, see, you may say, I like it when the, the, the bumpers are there <laughs> in the gutters. Well, so do I. So um, basically what we have here is um, we've got two gutters right here, or two, two bumpers that help our love not go in the gutter, if, if you want to view it that way. Um, it's knowledge and all discernment are the things that accompany genuine love that help our love maintain its biblical quality, if we will, okay? The, the first thing that Paul says is that of knowledge, okay? To have knowledge is to comprehend truth. It's knowing that which corresponds to reality. And since Paul is speaking about spiritual realities here, he's talking about spiritual truth. By, by implication, then, he's talking about God's Word. So we can put it this way. To the degree that we know Scripture is the degree to which we can love others well. We have to know God's Word if we are to love others well. Kent Hughes has a helpful comment here. He says, remember this, a superficial love for God is a sure sign of a superficial knowledge of God. 
This is why we must give priority to gathered worship with our Bibles and hearts open to God. This is why we must daily open the scriptures for ourselves and teach them to our children. This is why we must read both Old and New Testaments with our eyes wide open to Christ. The more you know of him, the more your love will rush up to him and out to the world. We must know the truth of God if we are to love God and others. But of course, this doesn't simply mean that we know facts about God and his word as if knowing facts changes anything. The Apostle James speaks about how even demons believe in the facts about God and his word, and they even shudder, but they have no love for God and care not at all to apply his truth. Paul knows this pitfall of knowledge. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He speaks there about the danger of having knowledge without showing love. I think this is why Paul adds the second set of words to knowledge in Philippians 1, all discernment. That refers to the ability to know the right action in a given situation. Let me say that again. I'm quoting a commentator here. The ability to know the right action in a given situation. To put it another way, it's the ability to take God's word, which is knowledge, and apply that in the circumstances of life. So what Paul is, is talking about here has a lot to do with the application of God's word. If we are to love the way God wants us to love, we have to have knowledge and all discernment. And why is that? What are the results of our love growing with knowledge and discernment? Well, Paul gives two. He says the first one, so that you may approve what is excellent. This is what, what Paul says, though, slightly differently in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern. It's the same word that we have in Philippians, that you may discern what is the will of God. It seems that what Paul calls the will of God in Romans 12, he identifies as that which is excellent in Philippians. The will of God is excellent. That is what we are shooting for as we navigate the Christian life, the excellent will of God. You know, by the way, um, it seems like when I, when I talk to, to Christians, uh, especially maybe, maybe younger Christians in the faith, um, there is this desire, and rightly so, to know the will of God. And um, I'm always trying to counsel folks and when, when they ask that question or, or they, when they talk about that desire to want to know the will of God. Um, I start with just their intake of the Word of God because without knowing the Word of God, they can't know the will of God. And oftentimes we, we kind of make the idea of the will of God super, super nebulous, um, like we're supposed to know super mysterious knowledge and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, what, what God's Word impresses upon us is a, a need to for, first and foremost know His Word. And as we know His Word, we can know the will of God. And therefore, we can then live for God. And so this is all important to, to that end. That's the first consequence. The second comes halfway through verse 10, which is more long-term in scope. Uh, the first result was like immediate. It was the approval of God's word in my life right now. The next result is future-oriented. It answers the question, why would I want to live for God right now? Why would I want to love the way he wants me to love? Well, Paul 
Paul's answer says, so that you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So why would we want to live for God right now? Well, because we have set our hope on the return of Jesus Christ. We want to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The day of Christ here is the return of Christ. He's going to come back one day. Amen? When Christ returns, He's going to do two things. Broadly speaking, He's going to do a lot of things, but generally speaking, He's going to do two things. One is Christ will deliver His people. He he will save His people from wrath. And then two, He will bring down on this sinful world His eschatological wrath. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that we are to wait for His Son from heaven who He raised, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus will deliver us from the coming wrath. And he also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In both of these verses, the, the wrath that is in view is this day of the Lord wrath. There is a, a future event that the Old Testament prophets spoke about called the day of the Lord. And during the day of the Lord, God's going to bring down punishment upon sinners to agree that He never has before done so. It will be a day of vengeance. But before that vengeance comes, Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 that God has not destined us to experience that wrath, but rather to be delivered from it. Amen. God has not destined us for wrath. Rather, He will save us from wrath. And this is in keeping with God's disposition toward His people as those who are the recipients of His blessing, not the recipients of His wrath. There was a time, church, before we became Christians that we were under the wrath of God. John 3, 35 and 36 speaks about this reality. You know, those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on them. But now that we are believers in Jesus Christ and we've been justified The gavel of God, if you will, has come down in our favor in accordance with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at at us, the first person that He sees is Christ clothing us with His perfect righteousness and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if there's no condemnation, there is no wrath. We will not experience God's wrath. Hallelujah. And the logic behind Paul in Philippians here, just going back to Philippians, is that if we are to be delivered from the day of the Lord's wrath against sinners in the future, we should live now as if we will be delivered from that day. In other words, if we know that Christ will return and judge sin and receive us to Himself, we should be motivated to live for Him now. I'll give you another verse. It's very similar to what Paul says in the verses that we're looking at. John says in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be like has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him like He is. Catch this. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, that is His return, purifies himself as He is pure. 
In other words, if you are longing for Christ's return, you will want to practice holiness and live godly. You will want to hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to be fully and finally complete in your sanctification. I think Paul is saying something very similar in Philippians. And as he wraps up this insight into his prayer to the Philippians, he gives this simple doxology as the prayer ends with praise to God, to the glory and praise of God. What a fitting ending to this insight of the Apostle Paul's heart into the prayer or to the the heart that he has for the Philippian believers is the glory and the praise of God. Paul's hope is that as they grow in the love that is accompanied by knowledge and discernment, it results in approving God's will with their lives and it looks forward to their final perfection at Christ's return. All of this will bring God glory and praise. And in fact, all of that is the same for us today. We want our lives to bring about the hallelujah, the praise to God, Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Church, there's a lot to learn um, here from the kinds of things that Paul prayed for the Philippians about. We merely scratched around on the surface. But I hope that we're challenged and encouraged by Paul's words here in particular. I hope that our fellowship as a church will continue in the things that Paul spoke about here. These things are present in this church, but I hope that we will excel still more in longing for Christian fellowship, committing together to share the gospel with others and love one another with knowledge and all discernment. Church, this was written 2,000 years ago, but the applicability of it is still with us today. The heart of the Apostle Paul that he had for the Philippians, my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would, in this coming year, embody that very heart and our love for one another. That by actions and demonstrations of love for one another, God might be gracious to grow our love as a body for one another. Uh, Because what did Jesus say? He said that they will know that you, my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Might that be a supreme characteristic that we demonstrate in this new year to the glory and the praise of God.